This morning we start a brief series in uh, the book of Malachi. It'll take us six weeks to, uh, to walk through it. Uh, it opens up and it tells us it's an oracle in the ESV, but in the, uh, in the Hebrew it actually is a little bit different than normal. It says it is a, a burden, uh, the burden of the word of the Lord. The word of God is often a fire in the bones or a, or a burden on the soul uh, that God speaks to his people. So as we come this morning, the message is I love you. <laughs> so God is uh, speaking to his people afresh. May he speak it to us afresh. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we do come to you this morning. We have gathered in your worship to give ourselves afresh, to love you, to worship you, to praise you, to pour out our hearts to you. Even as now in your word, you pour out your heart to us. Father, would you speak to us of your love? May you write it deeply on our souls in a way that sets us free and calls us to repentance. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. The book of Malachi was written about 420 B.C., give or take a decade or two. Um, It's written in that... 5th century, late 5th century, it is a post-exilic book. That means it is after the exile. Uh, I don't know, as you remember Israel's history, you remember that under Rehoboam, the kingdom is divided, and you have a northern kingdom of 10 tribes and a southern kingdom of two tribes. And, And in 722, the northern kingdom is conquered by Assyria, and they are they are taken into exile, but the southern kingdom holds out. It's about 150 years later that the southern kingdom falls when Babylon rises. And Babylon conquers Israel and Jerusalem in the southern kingdom in about 586 B.C. And a lot of uh, Israel, particularly in its leadership, is taken into exile. And it's about 70 years after that that the Persians rise up and conquer the Babylonians. And under their uh, governorship, they allow the Jews to go home to go home and to rebuild in many ways, as one of uh, the Persian provinces, but they allowed more freedom than some of these others. And so you see them returning in this period, the post-exilic period in the 450 to 400 B.C., that window, they're coming home. We see Nehemiah rebuilding uh, the walls around Jerusalem. We see the rebuilding of the temple. We see Ezra coming, and there's a, a spiritual sort of revival, a spiritual nurturing of the nation on their return. It's in this window that Malachi writes. There's a debate on whether he's a contemporary of Nehemiah or right after Nehemiah. These things aren't as obvious or clear, but it's right in that window. Post-exile, Nehemiah, Ezra, building the walls, building the temple, restoring Israel in many ways. It says it is an oracle, a burden of the word of the Lord to Israel uh, by Malachi. Now, Malachi, there's some wonder there too if that is his name or his office. Because in, in the Hebrew, Malachi uh, can refer to an office, to an angel, or to a messenger. And so there's some question of whether this is his personal name or whether it is his office. He is the messenger, this oracle, this burden is given to the messenger. I think some of the commentators, I think I lean with them toward it being his name. But I'm not sure in the end it changes much. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It's the last of the last. Next thing after Malachi is Matthew. And the Gospels begin. 
So it is the last book of the Old Testament before 400 years of prophetic silence. Between Malachi and the writing of Matthew and the coming of Christ and the opening of the New Testament, there's 400 years, and it's 400 years of, of silence. There are no more prophets after Malachi. There's no one else who rises up and says, thus says the Lord, and is a, is a recognized prophet in the nation of Israel, that God's voice goes silent for 400 years until John the Baptist Some would say John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet, is the precursor to Messiah. And so Malachi stands in as this final bookend, uh, the final bookend not just to the prophets, but to the whole Old Testament. The final cry of judgment and hope before a settled time of silence and waiting settles over the people of God in Israel. A deep sense of waiting. The Gospels pick up where Malachi leaves off 400 years later. Luke chapter 1 points to the fulfillment of Malachi 3 and 4, where he promises that he'll send a forerunner, that one will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. The theme of Malachi is that God loves his people. That he loves his people and he desires a sincere return of love from his people. That they would love him back. That they would respond to his love. And that they would express their love for him in faithfulness. In a faithful covenant life with him. The captivity largely cured their idolatry. They had had idolatry issues prior to their their captivity, their, their conquering and going into exile. And God largely cures that idolatry, but what rises in its place in this period of uh, rebuilding and post-exile is a, is a Pharisaic spirit of self-righteousness. And there's a certain shallowness to their religion. An outward formalism. They go through the motions... They offer the sacrifices. They rebuild the temple. There there is an outward conformity to religious things. They find is that there's an inward lack. Uh, We still see this kind of thing today, a religious facade. There are many people who do church things, who go to church and participate in things. There is a, a facade, an outward formalism of doing the right things in religion, saying the right things in religion. But there's an absence of true spiritual worship of the true God. To know him and to love him. And so to walk with him and to worship him. Jesus talks about, well, the Old Testament and the New Testament point to this time and again. Sort of a religious disease that has persisted over millennia. Jesus quotes the Old Testament in saying this, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts is far from me, right? They honor me outwardly. They say the right things. They're doing the right things. You know, there is a sense in which you're not saying they don't believe in God or they haven't walked away in that sense. You know, they honor me with their lips, but their heart's not really with me. That that true heart of worship to know him and to love him and to serve him. It's easy to be engaged in church. It's 
easy to say the right things and still lack that inner reality of a heart for God. Piper sums up the issues as we're going to see Malachi is going to address a number of issues in the life of Israel that show her lack of inner uh, devotion to God. It, it expresses itself in their whole life, in their spiritual life, in their moral life. Piper sums it up. He says they had grown skeptical of God's love. When you become detached from God's love, they become careless in their worship, indifferent to the truth, disobedient to the covenant, faithless in their marriages, and stingy in their offerings. That's a nice summary of the things that, that, that Malachi is about to talk about in the next several chapters. So much of Malachi then is a rebuke. It's a call to repentance. It's that call that stands before us morning by morning where his mercies are new. There is that call to repentance to experience those mercies. And so he, Malachi, his, his burden is to rebuke the people and to call them to faithfulness, to repentance, to remember the covenant, to remember their high calling, who they are as the people of God, the chosen people of God. He's calling people out of their hypocrisy. And into a sincere worship, a true holiness, a genuine sacrifice. It's a call for Israel to love her God, to love him really and truly, genuinely, sincerely from the inner depths that show itself in a life of faithfulness. It is unique that the whole book takes on the form of a dialogue, you'll see as we dive in here this morning. It's a dialogue between God and his people. Some have called it a, a formal disputation. A disputation is a, is a question and answer format. And we're going to see uh, that, that, that it takes this form where God makes an assertion, and the people are going to question God, and God's going to respond and give some implications to it. And then he makes another assertion. And the people question it, and God responds, and he gives some of the implications of that. And that's sort of the way the whole book unfolds. So we'll see it this morning as we dive in, and we look at verse 2 where he says, I have loved you, says the Lord. Right? That's his assertion. Right? This is his, how the, the disputation starts. I have loved you. How he opens his message to Israel. This unequivocal uh, assertion of his, of his love, of his care for his people. I have loved you. There's a sense in which I want to, in some way, stop and just sort of sit in that for a little bit. I've loved you. That's how he starts his conversation. His love is expressed in his covenant with Israel. As a sovereign king, God chooses Israel to be his people. Through the covenant, he adopts them as his children. He calls them his children. He says he is their God, he is their king, and he is their father. And it is that love of a father that governs the relationship and the covenant At the heart of the covenant is the love of God, his 
setting of his, his unfailing and his everlasting love on his people. It's how everything starts. It's how the book starts. It's how the first conversation starts. But my friends, it goes back to the first pages of the scripture and the last. It's how everything starts. God sets his unfailing, everlasting love on a people. In Deuteronomy 4.37, he says, He, God, loved your fathers, and he chose their offspring after them. He loved them, and he chose them. And these words are almost always connected with God. His loving and his choosing are almost the same thing. And they come in, in that pair so often, even in the New Testament, the choosing and the loving, the loving and the choosing. It says that he loved your fathers, he chose them and their children, and he brought you up out of Egypt. He delivers you out of your slavery. He saves you, he says, with his own presence and his great power. God loved you. He chose you. He saved you with his presence, with his power. Like he came and he, and he loved you and then so that love is expressed in his choosing, in his saving. Everything starts here. Not just for them, but for you and I. Everything starts here. He loved you. <laughs> and he chose you. And he chose and he moves towards with his presence and his power delivering us. Everything we do is meant to be a response to this love. If you don't understand that about the Christian life, you don't understand the Christian life. It's not about the law. He has delivered us in many ways. The New Testament so strongly wants to say you are no longer under law, you're under grace. He's loved you. He has saved you. Right? He has delivered you out of the kingdom of darkness, out from under the burdens of the law, and into his own kingdom, and into his own family, and his own love. Everything we do is meant to be a response to that love. He first loved us. And we hear that, you should hear that spoken before you hear anything else. It's where he starts here. It's where it starts with you and with me is this. I have loved you. And we love because he first loved us. I, he says, Jesus says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I chose you. I loved you first. And everything else is a response to that reality. That is the governing reality of a relationship between God and a people who he chooses and calls and delivers. And so when God comes to rebuke his people, and, and make no mistake, we're, we're, we're going to get there. He does come to rebuke his people, but what does he want us to understand? Even as he delivers this burden, right, this rebuke. What does he want his people to understand first and foremost before he says anything else? The context, even now as his children, for you and for me to hear his rebuke, to experience his discipline, the context for all of that is, I love you. I have loved you and I love you still. And that's why I have this burden and why I'm going to call you to repentance and to faithfulness with me, to return to your love uh, for me, to call you 
back to a faithfulness in our relationship because I loved you and I loved you still. And so I'm going to tell you the truth about you and call you out of your sin because they're not loving him. Their hearts are not in it. And that's kind of what you get as you run through Malachi here in each area that he kind of comes after them. Their hearts aren't in it. And he comes after their hearts. And he comes after their heart by, by expressing his heart, by giving them his heart. Right? I've loved you. Their hearts aren't in it. There's no, not a true devotion. They, so they're not obeying him and they're faithless. Calvin says he was neither loved. God was neither loved nor feared. Though he had a just claim to the name and the honor of a master as well as that of a father. Right? If the true love and honor for God are not flowing from, uh, from the heart, their hearts are far from me. And, and if, if your religion, if your outward practice of religion isn't flowing from that inward heart of love toward him, that it's close to him, what results is hypocrisy. It's what is kind of starting to take place in the life of Israel. It's what Jesus confronts when he shows up and that pharisaical spirit has become entirely institutionalized. And he, can, and he comes to his people and they don't know him and recognize him. And they stand in this, this pharisaical facade of religion. But their hearts are far from him. They honor him with their lips, but their heart isn't there. And so God comes after their hearts, reminding them of his covenant love and faithfulness. Because if we are to love him, if we are ever to be able to hear that rebuke, if we're to be able to hear that call to repentance in the right way, with the right heart, it is only going to happen if we first hear him say, I love you. I have loved you. I love you still. So return to me. Shake off the, the facade and get real with God. Losing sight of his love, which is what has happened there, which happens to many of us sometimes. There have been times in my own Christian walk, particularly earlier on, or you ask that question, you lose sight of his love and you wonder about your relationship with him. But losing sight of his love does lead to a, a superficial worship. If you're not sure that God loves you, if you're not sure that he's for you, if you're not sure you belong to him, if you're not sort of living in those realities day by day, then, then our worship becomes superficial uh, there's a spiritual laziness that can set in. There's broken relationship. There's a moral slide that takes place into sin. There's a backsliding that takes place when we lose sight of his love. All true devotion is fueled by his love for us. And the further we get from that fire, uh, we call it backsliding. All the fruits of lovelessness. And so God comes and he says, I have loved you. And I love you still. Return to your first love. To a genuine heart and faithfulness. So this is God's assertion. This is how he begins. I think it is, uh, for me, as I got back into this again, it just, it just I don't know, 
waters my soul, that God starts with this. I've loved you. I love you. However, the people respond in verse 2, and they say, but you say, he puts the words in their mouth, he knows their hearts, Jesus, and often knows what's going on in people's minds and hearts, and Jesus would, would respond to what they're thinking rather than what they're saying, and God responds to what they're thinking, and he says, you say, how have you loved us? There's a question. How have you loved us? What a painful place to be with God. Not sure that he loves you. I say early in my Christian life, I got there after five or six or seven years of being a Christian and struggling so hard in my sanctification and realizing that, um, that my problems and my sin run so much deeper. I was trying to clean up my life and finding my, my sin and my, my struggles run real deep. And then they start to ask that question, am I even a Christian? How can he love me? How can I struggle like this? And, and, and he loved me. Does he love me? Am I loved? To lose sight of his love. It's not really that unusual in times of struggle. I see it often. People go through a time of struggle or a time of loss, a time of sickness or death, a time of pain, a time of, of, of that, any of those kind of things where people wonder and they begin to question or they fear, does God love me? How has he loved me? I'm not, I'm not seeing it right now. I'm not feeling the love. I'm not seeing it in, in my life the way it is going or how it's turning out. Israel had suffered defeat, right? I say this is post-exile, but that means in the last several hundred years, they had suffered defeat. The, the northern kingdom went. The southern kingdom was taken. They went into exile. Their temple was destroyed. The walls are torn down. Jer- Jerusalem is laid waste. They've suffered. They spent decades in exile, and they now return to rebuild, and it's, it's difficult. It's costly. And they are finding there is some pretty tough opposition, if you read the book of Nehemiah. At one point, they're, they're building the walls with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. Like, nobody's going to make it easy. And they say... How have you loved us? I'm not seeing it right now. When people suffer, pain clouds our spiritual understanding. Pain makes it hard to see, makes it hard to remember sickness and death, broken relationship, career setbacks, disappointments in life, We're not as healthy, not as prosperous, not as comfortable, not as happy as we want to be when we suffer, when we think things are not the way they should be, the way we think God should be making it, what he should be doing in my life. I shouldn't be in exile, right? The temple shouldn't be torn down, right? And when we are in that place where things are not the way we think they should be, we might question, how has he loved us? E.W. Hengstenberg says, the merely outwardly pious, or you have a facade, he says, on the contrary, they could not fail to murmur against God and charge him with unfaithfulness. The outwardly outwardly pious, those who have the facade but have no real heart for God, because it it is outward in that sense, they depend upon material blessings to feel loved. 
right? It depends upon certain things going right in their life in order to understand and to trust God and to love him in return. So I ask you this morning, how would you answer the question? How has God loved you? How has he loved us? Where do you look for the evidence of his love for you? Where will we find it? Do we look to our material prosperity? Am I making as much money and doing as well as I want to be doing? Because if I am, then he loves me. And if I'm not, maybe he doesn't. Our personal happiness is like going the way that we want it to because we'd see that. I had people hit a rough patch. You know, things get tough and then they start to say, well, maybe I'm not going in the right direction. Maybe God doesn't love me because if he did and if it was, things would be... But they're not, are they? Part of what we find here is that both, as we're going to talk about Esau and Jacob in a moment, they both suffer. Christians are not immune from any of the things in the life. It will depend on what some preachers, you know, despite what some preachers will tell you. We will experience sickness. We will grow old and we will die. There will be pain. There will be suffering. There will be loss. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But here's the thing. Take heart. I've overcome the world. But in this world, we will have trouble. And so God answers the question about his love. How, wh- how have you loved us? Right? And God is going to answer it. He responds. And it's interesting how he responds, where he goes to demonstrate, to prove his love. Because God answers the question with the f- assertion of his sovereign, free, gracious, electing, choosing love. He said, I chose you. And I loved you, is his answer. Not that I've given you smooth sailing. Not that it's, you know, life is going to be a bowl of cherries and then you get to go to heaven. Not that it's not like that, he says, but, but I've chose you and I loved you and I adopted you and I brought you into my family and I gave you, uh, you know, forgiven your sins and brought you into my family and given you a hope and a future. And so listen to his answer as he moves into verse 2, where he says, you know, is Esau not Jacob's brother? How have you loved us? And it's an interesting answer. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Everybody knows that he is. Everybody knows the story. And he says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, as if that should tell you something. And yet, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Right, so his answer is, is not Esau Jacob's brother? And yet I loved you. Right? They were brothers. <laughs> See, God is saying, I could have chosen Esau, but I didn't. I chose you. Right? Esau was his twin. They were, in that sense, I, I, identical in terms of their, their timeline and their family and their place in the whole history there. And there's two of them and they're twins. And Esau not only was a twin of Jacob, but he was the older brother. He was the eldest. He had certain rights and privileges in that culture. He was first in line. He's the older brother, first in line. Jacob had no advantage. He, Jacob had no right. Jacob had, did not deserve it. Jacob did not earn it. And yet the Lord says, Jacob I have loved. You, I'll say in the, in the church, I have loved. 
I've loved you. Esau, I hated, but I chose you and not him. God reminds Israel the unconditional, electing, covenant love of them as a nation, that they're God's chosen people, but not just as a, as a nation as a whole, but also as the individuals in the nation. When he says there, uh, but you, yet I have loved Jacob in the beginning when he says, I have loved you, that you in verse 2 at the beginning is plural. So he doesn't just say, I've loved Jacob, I've loved him, as if the nation was this in mass, one thing, and you know, there's a faceless mob out there. No, when he says, I have loved you, it's plural. I've loved you. Right? So it is, he, is, he is, in a sense, choosing a nation, but he's choosing, and even as Paul makes clear in Romans chapter 9, that even within the choosing of the nation, there was a spiritual people, a faithful people, a choosing of a people for himself. Verse 3, he says, Esau, I have hated. And this is to be a comfort to them. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau, I have hated. I have, it's a hard statement if you're Esau. They neither one deserved his love. Jacob didn't deserve it. Esau didn't deserve it either. And this is the thing that we often lose sight of in our whole understanding of this. And I know it's a difficult topic. When we talk about God's sovereign, gracious, electing, and choosing love, Old Testament and New, because that theme runs through both Testaments so consistently and so thoroughly in the way that he describes what is going on. In, in the choosing of Israel and in, in the church. But he thinks and he brings it to us as, and he opens and we'll see in other places where he, he opens his dialogue with us with this fact that if you're sitting here and you know him and you love him, he says, I chose you and I loved you first. And it's to be a comfort to us that even as there are those whom he has left outside his love is set on you. It's a hard statement. Neither of them deserved his love, but God chose Jacob. He unconditionally elected and chose Israel. He made a covenant with them and not Esau. He said, I will be your God, Jacob and Israel, and you will be my people. And he covenanted with him, and he says, but not Esau. He says, but weren't they brothers? And yet, I have loved you. Paul says this in his own way in Romans chapter 9 where he picks up this whole conversation and he says, though they were not yet born, and this is Jacob and Esau talking about this reality, not only then here as Israel's a nation and individuals, but of the church and the individuals as he's explaining the relationship and how God still works this way. In Romans chapter 9 to 11, and he says, though they were not yet born. So not only were they twins, and not only was Esau the older one, but he says that the choosing of Jacob was before either one were born, before they had done anything good or bad. Like in other words, it wasn't anything in either one of them. Neither one of them deserved it. Right? Before they'd done anything good or bad. I didn't choose Jacob because he was the nicer one. I didn't choose Jacob because he was the better one, because he was going to do. He says, before they had done anything, 
in order that, why does he do it then? Why does he do it before they're born or before the foundations of the order? And he says, in order that his purpose in election, the word election there could be translated as the same word as cho- choosing, that his purpose in choosing, the Bible makes such a big deal about it being God's choice over and over again. It, it, it makes out that choice is significant. It's the important one. It, it's the one that matters, that God, that his purpose in election and choosing might continue or it might stand. And then he says, now, now you might try to sneak it back in, that it was something in one or the other, something in you and not them. And he says, so he says it again, and before they've done anything good or bad, not because of works. And because of what, God? Because of what did you base this choosing on? What did you do? It says, because of him who calls. That, that in order that God's purpose in choosing would stand, that he has a purpose. And so it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Unconditionally chose, loved when they did not deserve it. And Esau is, as we use the language, Esau is passed over. There were two, they were twins, they hadn't done anything good or bad. One is passed over and one is loved and chosen and becomes God's beloved people. He chooses one. He passes over the other. And what happens is that he remains lost. If God had not chosen and loved Jacob, he too would be lost. Because apart from God's choosing and electing and gracious love, everyone is lost. This is a scripture. We just finished Romans. And what is Romans 1, 2, and 3? It's that God is pounding home the fact that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jew and Gentile, Israel or non-Israel, they all have fallen short. And apart from God's electing gracious love, they will remain lost. You remember in Romans 5.10, he says, and you know the verse, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. We remember that apart from God's work on our behalf, his loving and choosing and his saving of us, we were his enemies. That that's where we stand by nature. Ephesians says we are children of wrath. And here it says, while we were his enemies and we were reconciled to God. So that's where we have, we had Jacob and Esau who are both in that sense God's enemies. But he chooses Jacob, sets his love upon him, adopts him as his own, says, I will be your God and you will be my people. But he passes over Esau in his fallenness. He chooses to save. Esau remains in hostility. God elected and saved Jacob, but he allowed a state of humility to remain with Esau. There was hostility between both of them until God changed it. But he allows that hostility to remain. So in passing over Esau, he remains under the Lord's judgment. And so he goes in verses 3 and 4 where Edom is made desolate. It says, Esau I've hated and I've laid waste to his hill country and I've left his heritage to jackals to the desert. Jackals are symbols of the wilderness and the haunt of wilderness places of the desert. If Edom says that we are shattered but we'll rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may be rebuild but I will tear it down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. 
in passing over Jacob, he remains under God's judgment, as the world is, and even now, unless we find ourselves here, we remain. It's in contrast to Jacob. Edom has no hope. That's what that verse says. Even if they want to try to rebuild, even if they think they can pull themselves up by their bootstraps, even if they think they can fix it on their own, God says it's not going to happen. There will be no lasting habitation for those outside of Christ. They abide under judgment. And so both Israel and Edom had suffered. Both of them had loss and destruction. But because of God's electing love, Israel has hope. Israel has a future. And that's what God comes to remind them. You're mine. I've loved you. You have a hope and a future. How have I loved you? Do you not understand that if were it not for my choosing you, that you would suffer the fate of Esau and Edom? That you would abide under judgment and wrath as the world does, even now as you and I would say, but for the grace of God... There go I, lost and remaining under wrath, but for the grace of God. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, he's going to go on to say, we'll get there. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. Because I have chosen you, because I have loved you, you are not consumed. I'm faithful to you. You are saved. I have saved you. And so he comes in faithfulness to his people, reminding them of his saving love, his distinguishing love, of the love that made them his, that brought them home, that adopted them into his family. There are no promises for Edom, for Esau, only the certainty of judgment. He says he will be angry with them forever. And we see that judgment day coming. And that apart from Christ and to stand in his grace, he is angry with them forever. But the people of God have hope. And the book of Malachi is about this hope. It starts with this hope. It's what he reminds them. Do you have any idea who you are as my people? I have chosen you, so I will be faithful to you. He is faithful in coming to them to call them to repentance, to woo them, despite their sin, despite their rebellion, despite their wandering, despite their backsliding. He comes to them, and he consistently tells you, I love you, I love you still. Return to me. He says in verse 5 that, Your own eyes shall see this. See this, a judgment for those who stand outside and for grace and mercy and hope and a future for those who are inside. Your own eyes will see this and you will say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. He has chosen Jacob, but he is Lord and judge of all the earth, of all people In those days here, but even now, all the earth will see his judgment is part of what he is saying, that Edom will remain like this, and all the earth shall see it, but all the earth shall also see my love for you, my saving acts for you. All the earth will see Israel's Savior beyond the borders of Israel, the one who is coming, and we've touched this again and again, the seed of Abraham, the singular seed, the singular son of Abraham, uh, through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed, and all the earth will see it. 
He's calling his people to repentance, to humility, to gratitude, to devotion, to love. Because he loves them. Because he chose them. And because he's faithful, even when we are not. And I can't tell you how many times in my life where I can feel the drift, where I, I find myself in places I don't want to be. I find myself that my lips, I honor him in my heart, has drifted. And how often and again and again that he comes for us. And he does not let us go. My friends, we love because God first loved us. He set his everlasting covenant love on us. He chose us. We'll close with a couple of New Testament texts that, that pick this up for us. The same ideas in Ephesians 1 where he says this, to the church, to you, right? To the New Testament church. Paul writes and he says in Ephesians 1, 4, he chose us. Right? That's how Paul opens the book, before he tells them to do one thing, before he calls them to any obedience. In chapters 4, 5, and 6, the first thing out of his mouth, just like with Malachi, do you understand that he chose you, that he chose us, right? Before the foundations of the world, before we were born, before we had done anything good or bad. Why? That we should be holy and blameless and we would be purified by Christ. In love did he predestine us. He chose us and he loved us. And he predestined then that he determined that we would be adopted as his sons through Jesus. Why? If, it's, if it was before the foundations of the world and before we had done anything good or bad, why did you choose me and not Esau? Why? And the answer that he gives is the same as he gives here, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. When the whole world is lost, and abides under his judgment, God in his mercy saves a people and calls them to himself. He declares his love, and he declares it as the context, right, as the theme, as the explanation, as the motivation for everything else that follows. Everything that's about to follow in the book of Malachi, he says this is the context in which to hear it. But my friends, it is also for everything that follows in your Christian life, this is the context in which we're meant to hear it. He chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless in Christ in love. Did he predestine you according to the purpose of his own will, to the praise of his own glorious grace before you had done anything and there is no glory on you but to our Savior. And so everything that follows is he calls them to a life of faithfulness. He says he calls them to do it because they're loved and because they've been chosen and they're his. This is what Paul does. I close with this. Colossians 3, Paul says, put on then. And he's going to name all the Christian things that were to put on to be like Christ. But he says, put them on like this. It's God's chosen ones, Right? Paul takes this language, it hasn't changed. It's the same language, Old Testament and New, put on then. Just like Malachi is about to say, put on all these things, repent and do the right things. Put on then as God's chosen ones, what? Holy and loved. Whatever follows. This is the context, right? This is the, the theme, the explanation, the motivation for everything that follows. It says God's chosen ones, holy and loved. Put on then the glorious image of Christ, compassionate, 
kind, humble, meek, gentle, forgiving. With his love, he seeks to stir a return of love and devotion to him, to remind us again and again that he loves us and he is faithful, and then he calls us to that faithfulness in return. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. We thank you that you did indeed choose us and love us and cleanse us and make us holy, that you united us to yourself and you adopted us as your children. Before we were born, before we had done anything good or bad, when it's not because of us and not because of our works, not because we deserve it and not because we've earned it, but according to your good purposes and your grace to the praise and the glory of your name, Father, help us to abide in your love. And to live from there, secure as your children, in whatever our struggle may be. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.